my name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen, and we're going to be talking about the Passion of Joan of Arc. But first, let's introduce ourselves. So, Laura, other than the Passion of Joan of Arc, have you watched any movies since we last recorded? I watched um, two films that I'd like to mention. Um, one was The Little Things. I saw that uh, by John Lee Hancock, which just makes me think of like a presidential assassinator, you know, with three names. I mean, sorry, John, but any three names, you know, just thinks about that. But it was it was a subtle serial killer film, very subtle, almost too subtle Mm. in that I didn't hear some of it. Like, I just thought people made some choices that I honestly missed some of the dialogue because I thought Jared Leto was great. I did. I thought I love Remy Malek, but I thought some he, he made a choice to be a very subtle guy. I also don't understand why it was took place in the '90s. There was no no reason for that. There was nothing '90s about it. Everyone looked super not '90s. I'm a '90s girl, so I can tell. You know, I hang out with Buffy in my head all the time. I'm at the Bronze, but. Joss isn't there, obviously, because he would be um, verbally abusive. And so the second film I saw was Framing Britney, which I thought was really just, you know, I saw, Jeremiah, I saw your Mm -hmm. um, Instagram post about how, you know, appropriate it was to be, and so sad to have watched The Passion of Joan of Arc this week and also Framing Britney come out the same week because it's so, both films are so contemporary and such a crime and mm. we're all just bystanders to this. It's just, it's gut wrenching what happened in both films. And there's so many parallels with mental health and how we fail as society um, that, so those are the two films I saw. And even on a surface level, like uh, the shaving of the head is like a the big shaving moment, of the head. Exactly. It's just, weird. it was so intense and, kind of fucked up mm-hmm. <laughs> just because like framing Brittany and passion of Joan of Arc are two films that I do, I personally don't leave you. They just, they stick with you and you're having breakfast the next day and you're like, the images come back and those faces of the men yelling it and taking over and taking control. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very vulturistic. Yeah. That's what I watched. Very uh, pleasant fare there. But, yeah, it was uh, fun. It's fun week. Um, Mia, what did you watch? I guess what did we watch? Yeah, I should say. <laughs> um, I also watched Framing Britney Spears and had or Framing Britney. I don't know if it's her full name or not. Um, not sure. Yeah, but and had similar, very similar thoughts, especially with the shaving of the head. I was just like, oh my god, whoa! This is like watching the same movie here. Um, I also read earlier this week somewhere that there's going to be another Britney Spears documentary coming out too. So excited for more of that one that she might have actually been involved in to some extent. Um, Yeah. So I I feel like it was sort of like a a fire fest, like these two docs coming out. So, Um, but yeah, I thought that was really good. I thought it paralleled really well with watching Joan of Arc, but you know, I just thought it was really good and interesting anyways and just made me feel really sad for Brittany in a lot of ways um and then it happened right in front of us Mm -hmm. yeah I know and it was just like and 
you know, I was, when did Hit Me One More Time come out? Like 98 or something? Yeah. yeah, I think like 98. Yeah, so I was 12 then. So it was like really like the perfect age for like crazy Britney Spears fandom. Like everyone was obsessed mm. with her. And I don't know, I just feel like very much like grew up with her music in all of these ways. And so just, and like at the time, like when the whole like Justin thing happened, like I was totally like, oh my God, how could he have, or how could she have cheated on him and stuff? And like now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, like fuck Justin. And he came out with some like two-bit apology the yeah, other day. Yeah, I want to take a poll yeah. after we talk about the film. How <laughs> we feel about Justin's apology? <laughs> Not, yeah, yeah, thumbs down. <laughs> Um, but anyways, I also, Jeremiah and I also watched Judas and the Black Messiah, which I thought was really good. Um, also, it's about the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton. I definitely spent a lot of time over the weekend reading like Wikipedia pages about the Black Panthers because I have to admit I don't know that much about them. Um, but I thought this was also just a really good movie and just a story that I had never heard before. And like the acting was all really mm-hmm. good. and. Yeah. yeah, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, which I mean, they're always good, but like they're phenomenal in this. I thought, mm. yeah, Lakeith really is good. so good. Yeah, yeah, so good. This so, was yeah. like maybe my favorite Daniel Kaluuya performance at this point. Well, I I don't know. It's it's so different from Get Out, like because Get Out is so reserved, and it's like one of those movies that the more I see it, the more I appreciate how much he's doing as an actor in that movie to make it work. But it's the first time you see it, it he's so quiet and. Like I said, reserved that it's easy to just sort of miss how much work he's doing in that. Yeah. But in Judas and the Black Messiah, like it's like this he he goes back and forth between like this bombastic character that he has to be in public to like, you know, the head of this movement to being um, you know, a guy with a personal life. And he just he does that balance really well. Yeah. But. And especially I watched like some video clips of Fred Hampton, who he plays in the movie, giving speeches and things and I mean he really does such a good job of portraying him as one of those like you know he is this person kind of movie titlings um so yeah and it's just also like Fred Hampton was just you know where would the country and the city of Chicago be if he hadn't been assassinated by the FBI in terms of what he was doing to unite people across class you know in the city um you know, arguably a very different place than we are in a lot of ways today. Um, so it's just also just so sad. And he was only 21, 21, 22, like 21. 22. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he like was that. assassinated, it's just like, oh, my God, to have already accomplished so much in your incredibly young life and like what he could have done. Um, so just very sad. Mm-hmm. So. Just um, like Joan of Arc. Yeah. And, and it, Britney Spears. <laughs> we also watched uh, Trading Places, which is a very oh. weird movie to watch now. Yeah. Um, it's it's like, uh-huh. in some ways, I, I it plays to today so well because it's got this sort of eat the rich vibe. But then when you stop and think about it, it's not really about like taking down the rich. It's about like becoming rich yourself. Yeah. Um, That's true. But also there's some like stuff that... I mean, not a big surprise. It's it's a comedy from 1983 by John Landis, of all people. So there's some stuff that doesn't age particularly well in it. Like Yeah. Uh, there's like one scene when they say the N-word, and it's just so like, oh, my God. And, like, and, uh, there's a homophobic slur. At yeah. Least one, the whole, maybe the whole gorilla narrative. Yeah. yeah. The, the gorilla thing oh, is weird. Yeah, I do. Just the, like, 
completely unnecessary nakedness of Jamie. Really creepy. Yeah. yeah oh, but I don't think it's unnecessary. I mean, I, mean, I don't. I, I think Jamie totally needs necessary. to be naked in every movie. Her <laughs> body is amazing. She amazing. is. I, I think she she launched so much puberty. Sure. Growing up, yeah, she, she launched. She and uh, Carrie Fisher so right around the same yeah. time. Uh, 1983 was it was a good year for adolescent boys uh, <laughs> <laughs> with gold bikini Carrie and uh, Jamie Lee. Yeah, Jamie yeah. Lee. Even now on her Activia commercial, I think she should be naked. Mm. Um, I also watched a documentary called Time, um, which was very good. I recommend it. I don't. I don't really. It's it's about a. A woman and her family who the husband is in jail for a really long time and it's it's just sort of like a portrait of her struggle and um it's just very well done i don't know how to describe it it's it's good and it's on amazon prime so i think that's where i watched it so it's it's pretty available um yeah but uh how about steven what what have you been watching um well I kind of needed a palate cleanser after I watched uh, the movie this week, Passion of the Joan of Arc, and um, it was What We Do in the Shadows. I have a big list of movies that people recommend to me that I never get around to watching. Um, so I decided I'd try to get something that was a little bit on the fun side. And it was made in 2014, and it was directed by uh, Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi from Flight of the Concords. That's where Jermaine is from. And it was just kind of an enjoyable, kind of fun movie mm-hmm. to watch. Um, just to kind of pass the time. And it was pretty short. It was about like an hour and a half. So it was a kind kind of nice bookend um, when I got finished with it. The TV show is so funny. I actually think so it's better good. than the film, okay. which is hard. You know, you don't usually say that, but. Matt Berry. I mean, mm-hmm. he's That's... one of my all time favorites, but in this is just, he's just so, so funny in yeah. this. So okay. hilarious. You gotta watch it. Mm-hmm. You should really watch it. And one of the characters looked like Nosferatu, which was kind of interesting because that was another silent movie that I actually did see. Um, not this week, but I've seen in general. And how about you, Alicia? Uh, so I am staying at my mom and stepdad's house in Florida right now. So I'm a little bit at the mercy of what my mom wants to watch on TV most nights. It's been a lot of Midsummer Murders and other PBS fare. Um, but we did one night watch Little Things Laura. So I watched that too. Um, I thought it was really derivative, uh, uh, really mediocre. I did not enjoy it very much. I kind of didn't understand what happened in certain parts of it. And yeah, I also, I think the only reason for them to have, for the movie to be taking place in like 1990 was so that they wouldn't have cell phones I where they could be tracked <laughs> for their location. Did you have problems with the sound? Well, we had the dishwasher running while we were oh. watching it, but I do remember that I kept telling my mom I can't hear anything. I couldn't like, hear it. I it couldn't up. hear some yeah. of it. So yeah, maybe it was really the problem. Maybe the problem was really more on the films. Maybe the, the I would say movies, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that could be. But um, but yeah, I didn't enjoy it very much. But I watched um, some. I watched all four seasons of Search Party, which I really enjoyed, way more than I was expecting to enjoy that show. I really liked it. Um, it's really dark and also like really deeply darkly funny. Um, and yeah, I think. And then this. That's that's kind of all I really got into this week. So, whenever I watch crime 
things that take place before the age of like cell phones and <laughs> tracking and credit card tracking and surveillance cameras everywhere. I'm like, oh my God, like, crime was so easy to do you know, 20, <laughs> 30 years ago. My favorite thing is when people talk about balancing their checkbook uh, and no. it's yeah. just it automatically dates it. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody fucking does that anymore. Nobody's ever Who has a checkbook? No. I actually I'm have just, a checkbook. Shut up, Steven. I, I have one somewhere. I mean, yeah, I you have checks somewhere. Me. Yeah. You could have checkbooks. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, well, because you need it for rent. Yeah, I haven't had to pull a check off of it in a yeah. while. But. but every once in a while, there's like that one random <laughs> thing that it's like yeah. only checks. It's also like five addresses ago for me. Yeah, now. that's what I was going <laughs> like, to say too. My address on top of the checks is yeah. super old. Um, <laughs> So for those who may not have heard our first episode, this is a podcast where the five of us will be discussing movies that have appeared on Sight & Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next one will be out in 2022, so we're using it as a prompt to watch some classic movies, and we invite listeners to take part in the discussions about the movies we're watching by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group, by emailing, or by leaving a voice message on our anchor.fm show page. And in our first episode, we each picked a movie for our first round of discussions, and Mia picked The Passion of Joan of Arc as our first film. So a little bit of background info on that before we get into our discussion. Uh, Released in 1928 and directed by Carl Dreyer, the movie depicts the final days of Joan of Arc as she was held captive by the English and stands trial at the hands of clerics who doubt her claims of being an agent of God. In it, Maria Falconetti as Joan depicts a would-be saint struggling to keep her faith in the face of persecution and death. As a film, it's known for its heavy reliance on close-ups, especially those of Falconetti, as you see every raw emotion on her face from moment to moment. Dreyer, a Danish filmmaker, was invited by a French company to make the film, which was itself controversial among many of the French who believed the story of such a hero of France should be told by a French filmmaker. Almost immediately after the film was finished, it was compromised through censorship and fire, leaving versions of the film that Dreyer was unhappy with as the ones that people mainly saw for years. Even then, though, it was still considered a critical success and even a quick classic. So, Mia, uh, why did you pick this one, and what were your thoughts on it after watching it? So I had picked this movie because you had told me about it early on when we started dating, and I'd never heard of it before, and you said it was one of your favorite movies, so I just kind of been on my list of like, oh, I should watch that over you. the years. I know, right? It's good for Valentine's <laughs> yeah. Day, though. <laughs> not that I necessarily consider myself a movie person now, but I was absolutely not a movie person before Jeremiah got a hold of my life. Um, <laughs> I would like maybe, I know, right? I would maybe see like two movies a year or something. Like I would like watch stuff on like Netflix and things like that, but like more like TV shows. And yeah, like I would only go to a movie very, very rarely. Um, so anyways, I just have now been exposed to the cinema. And <laughs> and so anyway, so I'd wanted to watch it for that reason. Um, and so my, among some others, I'm just being curious about it and stuff. But uh, my thoughts on it. So I thought it was a very impressive movie, but I didn't really, I did not enjoy watching it especially and I didn't I don't really say I would that I like it I think everyone should see it to have the experience of it like I understand why it's a classic 
created movie. I think the whole story about like the different versions is really interesting. The cinematographic techniques with all the close-ups and things like that, I think is really interesting. Um, but you know, it wasn't like a movie that I was like, oh, whoa, that was like such a good movie. Can't wait to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I was curious to me, there's certain movies that, yeah, I, I saying that I like them or enjoy them is harder to say than I appreciate them because they're not necessarily the kind of story, you know, that that's enjoyable. They're like hard movies to watch or they're just about a darker subject matter. And I do think this falls into that. Um, I think there's parts of it, like the filmmaking that like I do enjoy, but I understand what you, you mean. Like, I'm just curious if, if that's kind of what you're saying. It's like a movie you appreciate, uh, but like isn't the right word. I think yes for that. I'm just going to say it too. I got a little bored with her face after a while and all of the times of her eyes being, I honestly, I almost made a joke to you when we were watching it of like, oh my God, her eyes must've been so tired at the end of every day for filming of just being like super wide eyed, like constantly. You know how much bitch be paying for the cheekbones like that these days? <laughs> I, I thought that in those days, since they were like silent film actors, they sort of went with the territory when it came to doing something like that. So they might have been used to it. But that's, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, maybe like more expressive faces than we have to, <laughs> you know, because that's Definitely. the only thing you had to rely on. Um, but yeah, I just... I feel like it could have been a little shorter, um, which is frequently how I feel about movies. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I, I guess I just kind of thought like, oh, interesting part or beginning part, very interesting, setting the scene, all of this stuff. And then the end part when they're like burning her, like that was, you know, more interesting, but kind of a lot of stuff in the middle. I just felt like it was a little repetitive and didn't need to like it's, the story could have moved a little faster sorry joan <laughs> i guess one thing that's worth pointing out though is that all the dialogue in the movie supposedly comes straight from transcripts from the trial mm. so i think mm -hmm. that's kind of why it has those repetitive things to it glorious yeah because it, yeah. it's it's trying to like show what they put her through yeah, yeah and they were just like doggedly right? like going after her yeah mm -hmm. and i liked her answers to stuff like the whole question about um are you in a state of grace right now because mm -hmm. i guess it's like you wouldn't know that you're in a state of grace so she couldn't say yes but if she said no it would also not be true to her or whatever so i mean she had like good responses yeah. and definitely mm -hmm. watching it i felt very like infuriated on her behalf you know we were talking about the britney spears documentary earlier like really similar just like you're this person, you have these convictions or this, you know, trying to have control over your agency as a person or over your life and just feeling like no matter what you say or do, you're getting screwed over for it. Like I definitely, when they were just coming at her with questions and stuff, you know, it certainly reminded me of Christine Blasey Ford testifying about the Brett Kavanaugh right. hearings mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. other times exactly. that women have spoken up, um, you know, for themselves or gone against the grain of society <clears throat> somehow and just feeling like, you know, no matter what you do or say, you're going to be pilloried for it. Um, so, yeah, I enjoyed that aspect of it, but I just or not enjoyed, <laughs> I guess. But like, you know, I felt like very sympathetic. Yeah, I it felt very sympathetic for her, but there it was just 
there's a lot of wide eyed and then like single tears leaking out. But see, but um, what's interesting <laughs> about your point about the single tears and your Christine Blasey Ford and Brittany, it's like all these women kept their composure. Like until for, for Brittany, obviously there was that one breaking point or two where she shaved her head, but that those tears and those answers was what was the scariest thing that they, these men could possibly hear because they couldn't control it. They couldn't just throw it off as just being emotional woman stuff. And I, I thought that was what was so terrifying about all of it. To your point about it being a little long, I didn't feel like it was too long, but I did notice that my mind wandered a little bit in, in certain parts. But um, I think that also had to do with it being silent um, because I, yeah, I think if, um, if I had heard, you know, the dialogue, it would have been a little more compelling. Um, but yeah, I think with Silent Louise, it's kind of hard to stay engaged the whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What music did everyone listen to? I'm curious, because there's a few different, or oh, two there? different options, I guess, to listen. Oh, uh, I just I went with that. whatever was on the HBO Max, I whatever came on. Yeah. yeah. I know one was said, which is what we listened to. Yeah. I, I think, no, we didn't hear that at all. Yeah, I think on HBO Max is probably the, I think it's called Voices of Light score, which is like the one that is on most cuts. But yeah, Criterion mm-hmm. put out, um, mm-hmm. you could listen to it with that or with a score by members of Goldfrapp and Portishead. And mm-hmm. I, well, we, I want to see that version. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Where did you, where did you guys watch that? On the Criterion channel, mm. uh, streaming uh. service. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Which was interesting to me because, you know, we were talking, Jeremiah and I were talking about the movie and just when there wasn't a score to it. Okay. So I guess with, when they had silent movies and maybe y'all already know this, but I did not, it would just be kind of like random. Like sometimes they'd have music that was made to go along with it. Other times it would just be the person who was like the movie hall organist or whatever would just like mm-hmm. play music yeah. that they thought went along with it. Mm-hmm. And then the director of this movie, either the mu- the music that was supposed to go with it was lost. Is that the no, deal? The, he never. He never. As had far a as score. anybody knows, he never had a preferred definitive score, and he even said at some point, like I think at a MoMA screening once, that at that point, I'm not sure when this conversation happened. He said that he didn't actually enjoy any of the scores he'd heard with the movie yet, um, and people took that out of context in some way where they said he didn't want any music with the movie Mm. um but that wasn't what he actually said i guess yeah and it was just interesting to me thinking like oh this is music that was not i mean it was written to go with the movie but it's not like what the director and the other creators of the movie had envisioned obviously watching the movie with music that was basically like inspired by the movie and was written to go along with it. But however many decades after the movie was first created, there was parts to me when I was like, oh, I don't know if that's the music that I would have put in that particular part. So it was, you were saying, Alicia, how, you know, it's hard in a silent movie, like your attention drifts sometimes, Mm -hmm. which I totally agree with. But it was interesting to me because I totally had that experience. But then there were also times when I was like, oh, this music isn't probably like what I would have done here. Like this seems too elevated for this moment or too calm for this moment or whatever it is. So I almost feel like I had this experience of like listening to the music and watching the movie as two separate things in a way that I don't think I've ever had with a movie before, even a silent movie, because I was so like hyper aware of like, oh, this music was written like decades after the film was created. 
Stephen, you were going to say something? Um, it's funny because when I I have a tendency when I watch movies, it's sort of like I feel like they put it in there for a reason and that it was well curated. Um, I saw it on HBO Max and I actually really enjoyed the mu- the music in it. Um, enjoyed is kind of a strong word as in that I felt like it was a good place to have a lot of the music. And I know everybody's felt it was a little slow. I was feeling like it was slow at the very beginning of the movie, but it went as it went, I was getting more engrossed in it and it had to do with the music choice, especially like the end parts. I was really engaged. I was much more engaged in the end than I was towards the beginning. Yeah, I felt the music really guided me emotionally through most of the film. There were some moments where it was a little bit overwrought, like just like a little operatic or whatever, uh, when it maybe could have been a little bit less. But overall, I thought the score that, whichever score it is that they're using for the HBO Max version, yeah, it worked for me. I didn't think it was long at all. I really just kind of, it was riveting and so contemporary and current for me. I mean, the shot by shot, it just, there's so much behind each shot. And you know, what was that movie, um, Rome, Roma? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of such a deliberate film that I thought it was just each shot had something interesting to it. What I do think would be fun is not fun. (laughs) Wrong choice of words when it comes to fun in like the Joan of Arc. Yeah. Watch it with with whatever soundtrack Mm -hmm. you think might suit it. It doesn't, you know, I don't know if I would want to watch Portishead. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm a 90s girl, but that's a little too. 90s. Yeah. I I was on Wikipedia and I was kind of just looking at some of the information about the film and there's like a whole long list of people that have Mm -hmm. created music to Mm. go along with this. So I would definitely be interested in that. That sounds like a fun thing to check out, which again is the the word of the night when doesn't fit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay (laughs) to say fun. fun. Thank you. Um, But I'm, it was great. I mean, obviously the ending, you know, the, the staccato ending where the same shot where like they're starting arming the army against the, you know, things picked up and changed and got more frenetic. It was, Mm -hmm. it it was, it took you in a different journey at Mm -hmm. that point. Right. After such a long setup, but um, it was incredible. Also, I I think it's worth mentioning about that Portishead score. Uh, And it's not Portishead. It's like one of the guys from Portishead, one Mm. of the guys from Goldfrapp. It's not like Portishead music or, or something. Like there's some electric guitars in there, but they 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 worked with like a full orchestra to record it. So it's not like just like trip hop score to. to, to uh, I'm looking at uh, hop. I want to see that. Mark, though. Um, but, but I think I think the thing is though that like like Mia was was saying before, that's kind of how these movies went into the world at the time. Is like the directors and filmmakers had no real control over mm-hmm. how people were going to experience it, if at all, with music. And so, like, I feel like we're all kind of getting, in a way, an experience as close to you could at the time. Because, like, it's not necessarily what the director would put on it. Um, it's just kind of like something that someone chose to go along with it, like someone at a theater would have at the time. Because they, they would just, like, like she said, like maybe have an organist who's like the house organist and they just watch the movie a couple of times before the first screening and try to figure out some cues and make it up as they go. Or sometimes they'd have a full orchestra at a big screening or something like that. So there's like no telling what, it, what you would have heard back in the day 
Um, but I also like I wanted to bring up the editing because uh, I feel like we're kind of some of what we've talked about uh, relates to that, like the pacing and all. Like I, it's there's so many cuts in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's very like there's I think I read there's around fifteen hundred cuts in this movie, which oh, wow. is a lot for <laughs> for a ninety <laughs> yeah. minute give or take movie. Um, and I'd kind of forgotten. Like I remembered that I. Um, thought the editing was very intense and impressive but it had been a while since i'd seen the movie and it kind of hit me anew watching it this time i was like oh this is why this movie gets me because like the the editing just everything builds on top of itself and i think like the the stuff that you're talking and i'm not saying you guys are wrong to find it uh, slow paced in parts or anything like that I think whatever experience you have is the experience you have but like for me in those moments there's something there between the cuts and between the different elements of the filmmaking that like builds into a thing and sustains it and it just like I find the whole thing to be super intense and uh, just it's a whole emotional experience and I appreciate that about it uh, Alisa you, you had something? Um, I agree with you I, I really and Laura, I really found the movie just kind of like riveting overall for them, except for the few times where my mind wandered, <laughs> sort of in the middle <laughs> when she was like being, uh, when they were like trying to take her ring and stuff like that in the cell, I kind of found my mind wandering a little bit during that. But during the scenes where she was being interrogated, um, I found all I found all of that really, really um, engrossing. And I thought the shots were beautiful. And I, I thought it looked like something that was filmed in like the 1950s and not the 1920s. I just seemed, it just seemed so ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but with specifically with regards to editing, the final sequence also, as Laura mentioned, um, I, I thought that was great. And I kind of wondered, I'm not a film scholar really, um, but this when, when she was being murdered, um, they kept sort of cutting back between the crowd, the, the, you know, the people in the crowd, the birds in the sky, her, her face, the flames. And I wasn't sure if that was one of the first times that that type of editing had been, that type of sequence had been done or, or, you know, or not. <laughs> oh, I, I kind of wonder now that you're mentioning that I hadn't thought of it particularly before, but uh, if it's this is going to sound so pretentious in film school or something, <laughs> but, uh, if, if he if he was if he was inspired or I, I wonder if he was taking his cues from like someone Maya like, Darren like no I was going to say Eisenstein from Russia because that was like kind of what he was mm-hmm. known for of, of like really kind of quick cutting and going between things and like uh, he, he was I mean we'll get into that I bet um, at, at some point because Battleship Potemkin is on this list that we're yeah we'll I think that's to. around the right time mm-hmm. I yeah. think my Darren's post this film mm-hmm. by 20 years or something yeah yeah Maya Darren's like later right in her 40s like mm-hmm. well in the in the 40s right, right? right. this film was made in 28 yeah 28 yeah. is when it came out um but I think that there was stuff going on in movies like at the end of the sound era where it was getting so much more involved the the way people were editing and it was getting very inventive that I, I wonder how much of that uh, well I mean Dreyer had a hand in creating that whole language himself before this movie but I bet he was also in, inspired by other filmmakers whose work he might have seen from around the world I, I don't know whose work he had access to but 
um, it, it does remind me kind of of other filmmakers known for that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I just had one thing that, well, I guess it's a couple things to add, just because the, the moves I know or the cuts were so repetitive sometimes when something else kind of jumped into it, I paid attention to it a lot more. Mm -hmm. Like when she got spit on, that's when I knew I was invested yeah. in the movie. Like when I saw that, it was like a visceral, oh my God, I can't believe they, they went there. And then also with the blood scene as well, and then towards the end, it kind of, you know, built towards something else. So when all those images were coming up, I definitely was paying attention a lot more to that just because I was so familiar with the other characters at that point. So that it gave me something kind of to look at like more intensely. What did you guys think of? Um, I mean, I loved the fact that nobody had any makeup on. I thought that felt really, really modern mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. because I I've seen a few other silent films and people are wearing a lot of makeup and yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on with their faces mm -hmm. in the, in, in sort of most of the films that I've seen from that time period. So I thought this just looked really modern. Yeah. Well, I mean, Falcon, Falconetti and Antoine Artaud, those faces, they don't leave you and they're mm -hmm. so beautiful. Like I've seen people on the street that look like them. Yeah. I know these people. I, I've, there, there's beauty in, in those faces, so they don't need makeup or... Mm -hmm. right. She was 36 when she was played, when she played a 19-year-old. Mm. Um, oh, she I was? I didn't know wow. that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I, well, I think what you're saying, Laura, though, that it, they look almost like people you could see on the street. I think it's that and the fact that so much of it is in, in like very close-up shots. Mm -hmm. that makes it seem so much more contemporary, like you were saying earlier. Like mm -hmm. there's something about it that there's a remove that he is himself removed from the filmmaking process that wasn't mm -hmm. common at that time. Like people mm -hmm. caked on the makeup, like Alicia was mm -hmm. saying. People shot stuff in wide shots and just went in for close-ups here and there. It wasn't like built around close-ups like this. So it, it puts you in there where you can imagine Joan of Arc, this mythical person at this point as sort of like a real human being in a way mm -hmm. that I, th I think uh, wouldn't have been accomplished otherwise. So I, I don't know if that was the intention of it, but I think that's the effect at least. It just felt so real to me that at that, and then there were a few times where, well, as Steven mentioned, the time that the one man spit on her mm -hmm. and there were a few times where like flies landed on people's faces that <laughs> there was some like <laughs> tense moments in there <laughs> and they kept them in, you know, because it, it just, was obviously that would happen of course that would happen and you know you wouldn't stop a court proceeding and make everyone look gorgeous right right yeah um, yeah I really liked that I had a question about her hair because it was really interesting I've seen some depictions of Joan of Arc and she's had long hair in a lot of them and it was interesting that they kept it short and then they shortened it even more so that you really mm -hmm. could pay attention and maybe that was a style choice because her eyes were so luminous that they wanted to have something like that but Jeremiah do you know why they they chose to do that at all I was just curious no that, that's not something I I know. I know when he saw her, so he she was a stage actress and he saw her perform in some play or another and he was like, oh, I don't know, like this, I, not who I'm looking for. But then he saw her perform again and was like, OK, wait, never mind. And so he went to talk to her backstage and he was like, you know, I want to make this movie about Joan of Arc and I want you to star in it, but no makeup and you're going to have to cut your hair. 
And so she agreed to doing the movie, but she was like, you know, basically like, I'm going to work on him about this whole like hair and makeup thing. Like he's not serious <laughs> or whatever. And then, you know, I guess mm. she did agree to shave her head eventually. So mm. not at all an answer mm. to your question, but just something <laughs> that I thought that was interesting. I can just see like, you know, she was a pretty famous actress of the time being like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. But like, you know, we'll see about this whole hair and makeup. <laughs> well, I think the film itself deals with the gender aspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe they did so much in the transcripts mm -hmm. of the trial that that was the biggest offense, mm -hmm. that if this woman yeah. who is with a short hair and dressed as a soldier yeah. would just dress as a woman, she wouldn't have been burned. Well, I think she involved herself in men's matters as well. <laughs> or well, well obvi obviously, but matter. I mean, I think that yeah, but I think I that was an indicator. Is right. Like, right. Well, what I I did do I did do a little Joan of Arc. I'm a big history buff, so I did do a little Joan of Arc homework after I watched this too. And um, you're right, definitely like her wearing men's clothing was a big um, a large a, a large aspect in her trial, which I put in air quotes because um, it was really a sham. But um, but what I read was that a lot of the reason that she didn't want to change out of men's clothes and into women's clothing was because there was some aspect of the like the pants that would uh, that kept men from being able to rape her mm. while she was wearing them. So if she had changed into women's clothes, obviously she would have had no protection from that whatsoever. Um, and I mean, they didn't really delve into that aspect in this movie, but if, I'm sure that that was something that she was very worried about, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think that even though they didn't delve into it, just like with the torture on some mm -hmm. level with this mm -hmm. film, yeah. it's, they, it's always present because mm -hmm. we'll see the torture devices just as we know that this woman could easily be brutalized at any second by any of these men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The mm. part when they were taking her ring mm. and stuff, right. I really felt exactly. like, oh, the, the it's next like step a metaphor here mm. for yeah. them taking right. her. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to mention that some of this stuff I I said before, I got it from our, our buddy JPK. Um, he he <laughs> happened to have seen this movie and he commented in our Facebook group about it. And uh, he had show notes from a screening he saw at Columbia where they had uh, music. But yeah, just shout out to JPK. Big ups. Alicia. I haven't seen him in years. Yeah. It's been a while. Literally. Alicia, I'm, I'm curious in your, when you were doing some history research, because mm -hmm. so, you know, I feel like I grew up, like I'm sure most of us probably did, like hearing like the story of Joan of Arc and just like never really thinking about it super closely. And mm -hmm. especially with a lot of the stories of, the saints it's like you know they're hearing voices there's all they're you know seeing things whatever and I was mm -hmm. very interested when they were um interrogating her where they were like oh how do you know that it was this person were they naked were they doing this did they have wings like all of that kind of stuff and so in any of your reading did you come across like a modern explanation for why she said she saw these things if there is one because I didn't not that I looked like super hard but through a you know cursory search I couldn't find anything I don't think there is really a, an explanation it seems really um I mean there's there's probably a lot of different things that could have been someone seeing visions and then not having a real psychiatrist or a real doctor mm -hmm. to ask her 
you know, really get, go into the details on it. I don't think we'll ever really know. Okay, you get but, some um, leeches or someone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like <laughs> slice your arm open. But going back to framing Brittany, I think we're just, last year I was, or the few months ago, there was the first year that I, there was a mental health awareness day, which again, I thought was such a sham for this country because it is still such a stigma there's no infrastructure in place when people are in trouble there's they don't really have the tools or the steps to get the help they need and you know when you're watching framing britney and you see her postpartum depression that got away from her and everything just took complete you know just instead of help she became a target and a tool for and her suffering made a lot of people a lot of money and in a way with what happened in, in the passion of Joan of Arc with all of the, the townspeople performing and, and dancing. And I felt like it was sort of a similar thing. Yeah. It was interesting that they said long live Joan, like knowing that she'd be in prison and she'd be like under duress and they, they were right. okay with that. You know, they'd rather her be that way instead of the way that she right. really was. Yeah. That yeah. was interesting. Um, I get, I did find in my research uh, something interesting. I mean, I guess I never really thought about it, never really made this connection between her and sort of modern, what what we sort of still deal with in this country in, a, in, a, in this day and age with religion, um, is that she, she did view this, she did receive or whatever view this vision that she had um, as God telling her that it was like her duty to unite France again and get the English out of France and um, she she actually harnessed that before anyone else. She actually harnessed that sort of nationalistic message. They were in the middle of fighting the 100 years war, but there was it was just kind of a dynastic thing of who should be king. And the people of France probably didn't really care that much. They were just kind of doing what they were told. But she made it a real campaign of like, we have to like, we have to unite France again. We have to be one country. This is our nation under God, whatever. <laughs> um, so that really brought home to me sort of some of the things that we still deal with in this country. People feel that it's like a religious uh, cause to, uh, you know, make everyone <laughs> one thing. Uh, so I don't know if you guys thought about that at all, but that kind of struck home with me. I, did, I can't say that I thought about that, uh, <laughs> I, but I wonder if that's because I've seen the movie before. So I was just like, it, it wasn't something that I was registering as new. So I w wasn't thinking of it in that context, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Well, I didn't think of it quite like that. But one thing when I was reading about the movie is the government of France said, we want to make a story or we want to make a movie about France. And they you know, went to this director and said, we're going to pay you. I think it was 7 million francs or something, which I'm sure in mm. the 1920s was, I can't, I meant to look up before we did this, like how much money is that today? Because it's probably a ton. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just so interesting to me because like, you know, you, like, I can't picture the government of America going to someone and saying, we need a movie about America. But at the time, you know, it was still this emerging national, well, yeah, maybe, but <laughs> still this like emerging national identity. And Jeremiah and I ended up talking about it more as just like government support for arts and how that's so mm -hmm. lacking. But I just also think, you know, at the time in 
Europe, you know, countries are still kind of, you know, so this was like pretty post-World War One, right? So yeah, you've right had between the world wars. Yeah. So you've had like this devastation and, you know, I can just see them saying, oh, okay, we want to cultivate this like national pride and national image. And the other two subjects for the movie, he said, okay, I want to either do Joan of Arc, Marie Antoinette, or like another royal person. So I also thought it was interesting yeah. that what they ended up going with was Joan of Arc, like the most, you know, humble, regular person out of these options here. I think that's a much more uplifting story than for Right, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's interesting that you, you that's good feedback, um, backstory, because I was wondering why the film didn't deal with the fact that the French soldiers sold her right. to the British, mm-hmm. where she then was put on trial, because that was just glossed over completely. I And now I know why, <laughs> because it was French. Um, yeah. Yeah, they were trying to put their best foot forward on this. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, how about we go a little bit into some of the uh, thoughts on the movie at the time? So, okay. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but I think that could take us into some of the historical context that we're already starting to get into as well. Um, The so the New York Times review at the time said as a film work of art this takes precedence over anything that has so far been produced it makes worthy pictures of the past look like tinsel shams it fills one with such intense admiration that other pictures appear but trivial in comparison they also said it is the gifted performance of maria falconetti as the maid of orleans that rises above everything in this artistic achievement and variety called it on the other hand uh, a deadly tiresome picture so very mm. <laughs> contrasting reviews, and I think it also speaks to the pros of the New York Times versus the short terseness of variety. But um, <laughs> then in just a little bit of backstory about the movie as a movie, in 1981, uh, like we said before, there, people thought the movie was lost, but then in 1981, a forgotten copy of it was found in a psychiatric hospital in Oslo, and that version of the film has been more widely released over the decades, allowing people to see it basically as the filmmaker originally intended. Um, and at the time, it was named one of the top foreign films of the year by the National Board of Review here in the United States after it came out. And in 1999, it came in eighth in the Village Voices poll for best film of the century. Into our list and the emphasis of what we're doing on this show, um, The Passion of Joan of Arc was on the very first sight and sound poll back in 1952. At that time, it placed seventh. After that, I found this kind of funny. It was on every other poll. Uh, so every 20 years, it's on the poll um, since then. And so it, it was back at number seven in 1972. Then it was up to number six in 1992. Then it was back down to nine in 2012. And it appeared on the first director's poll in 1992 and number 10, but hasn't been on the director's poll since then. Um, That's interesting. I would have thought it placed higher because i just feel like this is a movie that like critics and directors would really like even Mm -hmm. if like people are like yeah exactly okay (laughs) impressive but it's not really like the kind of movie again that i think even if you think it's impressive and you know moving and all of that that you're like oh man i want to watch that (laughs) like it's just so intense 
Um, so w you thought it would have been higher? I thought that more directors and critics would have liked it. I can see it not polling as high on like people. What do you think the best movies right. are? But I think people who create movies and are looking at movies from this more like, you know, um, yeah. cinematography, editing, like that perspective, as opposed to like the story. Not that the story isn't good, but you know what I mean? Like. No, I can just see it ranking higher yeah. there. So I'm right. just surprised that I, it's only on at every other time and that it's not higher. Well, I think that might go to something we talked about in the first episode of these films sort of getting a new look from people when there's a version available to see it. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that up and down of it being on and then off of the top 10, it's probably still on the poll. It mm -hmm. just didn't make True. it into the top 10 um, those other years. But like... We just talked about they found that new that print, uh, that original print or whatever in 1981. So maybe that wasn't close enough, uh, or maybe that was too late in the game for it to get on the list in 1982. But 10 years later or 11 years yeah. later, people were like, "Oh, we've been watching this movie and and admire it again." Uh, and we've been able to see it the way it was meant to right. be. So it was, yeah. it was on the poll in 92. We watched a little, like a five minute thing that showed scenes side by side. And the original one is so much better than the one that I think people had access to for so yeah. long. It's just like. You mean the one we've seen or? The yeah, one we've seen. The one we've yeah. seen okay. is it's the better. original. But mm. just, I mean, you know, some of it is pretty subtle or I couldn't even really tell. But just like the shots literally look so much clearer. Mm. And it's just. The way that it was you know, so beautiful. I mean, each of stuff. those images was like its own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. been. I felt. I felt if they'd been it. in. Sorry, <laughs> I was going to say I felt if they'd been in color, like almost every shot could have been a painting. Mm -hmm. Just the the way they were composed, and right. yeah, I thought it was really beautiful too. Was the original a lot longer? Because I I thought I'd seen something. No, okay. No, so so the thing with it was that after they first lost the film. Dreyer was able to go back to the the outtakes basically that and pick the same shots but just a different take and put them in like the the most the, the thing they used as, a, as an example in this short featurette we watched was the scene where they're digging that hole and there's a skull that that uh, gets flung onto the pile and the yeah version that we are all able to see the version that Dreyer wanted to be in the world. Um, the, the skull lands perfectly in the frame upright and it just looks, it's just this crazy mm. thing that that happened. Uh, but in the other version that was out there for so many years, they'd lost that shot. So the shot is like, it's just kind of cockeyed and it doesn't look as impressive. So it's that sort of thing. And like, it's just, it's, it's subtle differences. I, I'm sure like the pacing of the film was still there. So like some aspect of it was still in place, but yeah, it, I mean, yeah, he, he lost the shots that he wanted the film to be the first time around and then sort of had to compromise on it. So I don't know. But Interesting. Um, did y'all notice uh, there was one Stephen made me think of this again earlier. I wanted to bring it up. But when you were saying how, you know, because so many of the shots are so similar, then when something different happens, you really notice it. Did y'all notice that like dragon chicken thing <laughs> drawn on the uh, the fortress or wherever, the jail where she's being held. Yeah, it was so weird. It was so weird. Okay, so it's in like the hallway. Like there's like a- On the wall. On the, the wall. wall. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, it's maybe like, yeah. yeah, like a foot by a foot it looked like or right. something. And it's just, it looks like graffiti or something. Like it just does. like a drawing weird. of this like 
dragon chicken yeah. thing. And it's the only thing that's ever on the wall the whole time. And as soon as we saw it, Jeremiah and I were both just like, what is that thing there? <laughs> yeah. It's just so random. And there's cute. no way that it wouldn't. Like, obviously, you notice it. And I don't know. It was just this, like, funny. I was like, did they try and just sneak that in to provide, like, this little moment of levity there? I'm just like, wait, what is that thing there? It pretty, like, light to me. But I definitely did catch that. Yeah. It's cool that you guys did as well. It was, like, a sort of split second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so just a little bit more historical context. Like we mentioned before, this, this came out between two world wars and maybe there was a national, I mean, there was a nationalistic, uh, movement behind the making of the movie, which mm. I think plays into that, uh, that timing of when it came out. And it was released a year after the jazz singer, which was the first movie with synced sound. So, you know, a lot of silent, like th this is one of the final, like silent classic movies, Really, I mean, there were some more that like kept coming out. Especially Chaplin was very stubborn about going to sound, um, but yeah. And then uh, I found it kind of funny that the same year this movie came out, which you could say was like one of the peaks of cinema at the time. Uh, Mickey Mouse first appeared in Steamboat oh. Willie, um, and yeah. I mean, there's other stuff that we could get into. I don't know how much of it is that important. Well, also, I guess it came out in, it was 1928, right? So like the yeah. last year before this like global depression yeah. that's mm. going to dominate the next decade plus. Um, yeah. So sort of like this last shining moment of, you know, yeah. the jazz age and all of that. Mm. Uh, in terms of movies, just to give a sense of where the culture was at that time, at least in America, uh, the the very first Oscars um, happened, I believe, in 1929, and they were like reviewing movies from 27, 28. That was the stuff that qualified. And a movie called Wings won Outstanding Picture, and then Sunrise, which is on the list of movies we're gonna oh. we're picking from, was named Best Unique and Artistic Picture. People kind of argue about which one of those was Best Picture. One last historical thing. Um, the top grossing movie in North America in 1928 was The Singing Fool, which I'd never heard of, but it was a follow-up to Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer, which is the first sound movie. So sort of like a moving into that era. Bye-bye, silent pictures. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, what was everybody's favorite scene or moments in the movie, if you have one? Well, I liked the the final um, sequence, as I already mentioned. I really found that probably the most powerful part of the movie. The repeat cut of dropping the gavel from the window to try and arm the army, that same cut over and over again, which kind of looked like a mistake, but also was just such a visually interesting choice, stuck with me. But, I mean, her face was, I you know, there's no one shot of her that I could choose. So that's that's why I chose that. Mm -hmm. I felt like um, the part where they were sweeping her hair up into the dustbin and her crown was in it and it woke her up. It suddenly, it was oh, just, you know, she, she had just gone with what they wanted because she was so tired, but just seeing that just meant that they'd won. And she just was like, no, I'm gonna recant. And so that for me, it just kind of switched the movie around and she just wasn't gonna go for it. Mm -hmm. I thought, the end uh the final scene but specifically like once she's already she's like on her knees when she's burning and like kind of like crouched forward a little bit mm -hmm. and that to me was just really 
sad because you just see this like black body outline and yeah it just was like very like this really emotional moment right yeah it's hard for me to say like i think because of the way the movie's made with the quick cutting and the close-ups it's more like micro moments this movie is just composed of micro moments and i so when i like just try to think about the movie i just picture falconetti's eyes like big and I picture like there, there's some camera moves in there that are, I think, very interesting, especially I think it's near the beginning where he they're polling the judges for their verdict on something. And we see all the hands up and it's just this very interestingly framed tracking shot where um, it's just sort of like the tops of their heads and their hands in the air. And it ends on I think his his character name is like the Mad Monk or something for some reason. I don't know. That doesn't really come across to me in the movie why he's called that. But um, and he is at the back of the crowd and he hesitates and then they the the main judge looks at him and he puts his hand up because he's felt pressured into it. Oh I, yeah, I, I think that is the mm-hmm. scene that sticks with me the most for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, so so do we all think this one stands the test of time or? Or not so much. I think it does. Um, yeah, I guess it depends on what I guess it depends on what the list or what you're really looking for when you watch a movie, <laughs> because it it obviously broke barriers at the time. So if you're looking for something that yeah that that was groundbreaking, then I think yeah it, it definitely stands the test of time. It looks beautiful. It looks contemporary. Um, as far as entertainment value, it's a little bit lacking, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know for me, I, I, th- I think it does. I thought, I think it's timeless personally. Yeah, I think it does. Um, just because it's rare that I see a movie that makes me think about it afterwards and think about the scenes and maybe it is the repetition of the scenes and the way that she looked to make me really think about it afterwards. Um, and also, I guess if you're, you know, you've taken any kind of film class or just have an interest in film, there's things in there that you can kind of go back to and look at. Yeah, I think it does, too. I mean, I, I pretty much agree with Alicia's review, but <laughs> I think that, you know, but just the story, too, like even just I, we've all connected it to the Britney Spears documentary that also came out in the last few days. But, you know, I think the fact that we can so easily connect it to something. And I think even if that documentary hadn't come out, we all still probably would have had similar thoughts about, you know, women trying to go against the grain of society and being judged unfairly for it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the story is certainly timeless. And I think the filmmaking is groundbreaking, unique. You know, I mean, there's not even movies that look like that today so put it in a time capsule Mm -hmm. for sure but i you know don't maybe watch it like on a first date don't want to watch it not a date no not like a casual saturday afternoon movie although it's good if you're taking french because the french was actually really easily readable for my like my three years of high school french surprise what's a date movie (laughs) i had the same thought yeah I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Madame Vey. Yeah, date movies. Yeah. Speak. Yeah. Did you say speaking of date movies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good segue. Yeah. So, Laura, do you want to introduce yeah. this part? Well, I wanted to know what everyone's favorite. You know, Valentine's Day is love and hated for 
or ignored. <laughs> um, and I just wonder what everyone's favorite Valentine's Day film, or I guess romantic film is to watch when you're looking for that movie. Well, I'm not a Valentine's Day real fan, exactly. I just, I, I don't know. So I actually had to look up which movies I really enjoyed um, and that they said were Valentine's Day movies. So the one that I saw, in, it's it's Gone Girl, which I don't know if it's necessarily oh. like a Valentine's Day movie, but they did say like one of the quotes <laughs> from one of the characters was saying like, you know, for Valentine's Day, I thought I'd bring a gun or I'd buy a gun. So uh, that, that's a yeah, great but, choice. But they do talk um, about the realism of what you know love is because that was a real relationship and the lengths that she went through. You know, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, but it's a, just a really compelling movie to me, and I enjoyed it. And I actually saw that with uh, Jeremiah years ago, and I, I, it's one of my top movies. I just love watching it. I like David. Please Fincher. tell me you guys went back. on Valentine's Day <laughs> together. Yeah. I don't remember when it was, but yeah, but I could rewatch that movie anytime. I, I really enjoy it. So maybe I'll watch it after uh, this podcast. So <laughs> I don't think I've seen it since then. Mm. Okay. I've seen it several times. I really like it. Okay, Jeremiah, your turn. What's your... Uh... Um, well, I, re I when I was trying to pick one, I realized the things I was gravitating towards are all like unrequited or ones that kind of, you know, they can't end up together. I, I think that those end up being the best movies because the, the stories, like, there's an open-endedness to them that... Like what? Them, uh, well, the classic one, I think, the one would, I think the one that would be actually good for a date, like an early date, is just Casablanca, just because oh, it's yeah. such a classic. Um, it's it's maybe yeah. cheesy to some people, but it's such no. a good movie. No, I love it. Um, Do yeah, no, it's think great. it's cheesy? I, I'm not saying it's cheesy. I think Fox some people them. would find going on a date to that movie cheesy. No. Oh, if someone thinks that, don't go on another date sure, with them. Sure, sure, good barometer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, more recent ones, I would say, for me, are Beginners. Um, with uh, Ewan McGregor and Chris Melanie Laurent and Christopher Plummer, who just passed away. Plummer, he won an yeah. Oscar for that one, I think. But yeah. um, And then uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which we went to on Valentine's Day last year. One of the last things we did. Yes. Before. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, I'll say for mine. So uh, I also like, I don't know if I, when I was like, oh, Valentine's Day movies, what? But I love romantic comedies, so especially on airplanes, um, so lacking <laughs> these days. But one of my favorite movies, period, and definitely a good one for now, is uh, When Harry Met Sally. I fucking love that movie. I could watch it like once a week, probably. I just think it's so funny. So like such like a love letter to New York. Hi, Luca. Um, such like just I love the witty you know back and forth and everything so yeah that would be my Valentine's Day recommendation if you're in a bad mood and not into Valentine's Day I recommend Marriage Story which is <laughs> devastating oh, wow. if you have so good but it's just like so devastating if you haven't seen it I watched half of it and I was like no yeah we went I'm gonna go get some chocolate yeah we went and saw it at a movie theater here i guess like last january or something yeah and just came out, and it was like you know like a movie theater at the bar and we just came out of it and we were both like i need a drink oh my god like yes. what did we just watch do you really want to get married like oh my god <laughs> um and 
one that I've wanted to watch, and so I was trying to look up and remember it, and I guess it's out, so I was going to propose maybe we watch it later today, is called yeah. Sylvie's Love. Has anyone seen that? I have not. I have it with Tessa Thompson. Yes. Is it good? Her hair looks really cute. I haven't seen <laughs> Her hair does look really good. It's a, she's she's so great. Yeah. I have not seen that film. Yeah. It does look Wait, was that a just was that just a Sundance? It's on Amazon. I oh, don't it already know if, is? Yeah. yeah. Well, it said it was coming out on Christmas, but I haven't seen anything about it. So I want to check and see. Like, it did It's it actually, on there. It is? Okay, cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a fish. It's like the 50, 40s or 50s, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's like, wants to be a music producer and or a movie producer. And then she like falls in love with this guy, but then he leaves to go on tour with his band and like she builds her life, I think, in New York City and is like this independent woman, but marries someone else. And then he shows back up and it just looks really cute. And like, you know, the kind of movie you want to like lay around and drink some wine to and look at like you guys are doing later. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Alicia. Um, yeah, I was also going to say When Harry Met Sally because that's like one of the only romantic comedies I like. I'm really not a rom-com person too much um, and I'm really not a Valentine's Day person mm. at all. Um, but it, I guess I also really like the old 1930s um, Weathering Heights. Uh, that's a favorite, just like classic star-crossed lovers who can never get it together a movie that just never fails to like move me. Um, Is that Laurence Olivier? It's Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon. And yeah, it's also beautiful, um, just beautifully shot in my opinion and and, and emotional. Otherwise I would say A Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) (laughs) If you like a scary movie and you want to like, you want to like snuggle, you want to like, hide your oh, face in someone's shoulders it's strategic <laughs> movie i do like that i'm not really that's scared closer. of horror movies but if you want to pretend like you're scared of a horror movie that's a good one that movie is the first horror movie i ever saw actually really? and while i was watching it with my friend kim salonza who was over for a sleepover my sister was at our next door neighbors and they devised this whole plan to pretend that they were coming to kill us so they started calling us on the phone and Ooh. all of a sudden they were wearing like masks and started like bombarding in and we just go completely nuts <laughs> i think one of us i'm not saying who peed themselves <laughs> it was memorable but, yeah, yeah. No, that sounds terrifying no it was great <laughs> i've seen all i've seen all of the nightmare on elm street i think i think except for maybe up to like the fifth one i've seen all of them and i watched all of them before I was like 12. Oh, wow. And I watched them like over wow. and over. I don't know why my best friend and I were really into them. And we, we just, like, nails did you see the reboot? There. No, I haven't seen, I think I only saw like the five, the first five. And then I haven't seen any of the ones after that. But, um, but yeah, we loved those movies. I don't know why we were even allowed to watch them. But we were. <laughs> I don't think I've seen any of them actually. Yeah, I haven't seen any of them. Like- the first and second one are great. Um, so my favorite that like well I think to me the most romantic film I've that's ever been made I think probably most of you know this because I've said it before because I go on about it is the Terminator I think that <laughs> I did know that he <laughs> travels through time for love um Reese you know with Sarah Connor I think and they reach feathered hair heights together battling you know this robot and skynet and save the universe 
and it's just to me incredible i love that film i love everything about it the walkman singing roommate i'm gonna bust you up man like every line just gets so yeah that's my favorite yeah i rewatched that one in the fall while i was recovering from surgery and it is the first time i'd seen it all the way through in probably 20 years and it's so good it holds up goddamn good it holds up it really does it's and it's romantic and the sex scene is pretty hot you know like not for nothing, but there you go. it's worth it. I'm going to have to rewatch that because it's been a long time since I've yeah. seen it and I don't remember all that stuff. <laughs> so now that's going to be my new Valentine's Michael Day. Michael Beale. Michael Beale. He was also in Tombstone. Michael Bean. 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 Is that how you say it? Yeah. Oh, good. I, I um, he was Johnny Ringo in Tombstone. Mm, yeah. Yeah. He was he was in um, Predator, too, oh, I think. Okay. Was he? Might have been, yeah. Some. I I don't know. He's in a bunch of James Cameron movies, though. Mm. Yeah. He's like, he, he was his guy. He was in uh, Aliens. That's what he was in, yeah. Aliens, not Predator. Completely okay. wrong. Oh, yeah, I don't remember who was in Predator <laughs> other than Arnold. And, well, and two other governors, right? Jesse Ventura. Yeah. And... yeah. yeah really? Had yeah. That's right. The homosexual affair with the other guy in that. I don't remember. Wow. Remember that? No, the, the homosexual undertones in that film are so incredible it's an it's i think it was really groundbreaking i think i only saw that movie when it came out i was like seven or eight and for some reason i went to it with my dad and my grandmother i think interesting <laughs> i don't know why i don't know why but I, anyway. I was you know what i realized i was conflating jennifer beale with michael oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was like flash dance <laughs> You're thinking of feathered 80s hair. Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't think she had feathered I'm, hair. I'm surprised know. no one said Dirty Dancing yeah. as a Valentine's Day movie. Yeah, Dirty was... Dancing is so good. And it's one of those ones that's it? like always Dirty on dancing? TBS and stuff. No. Like, you know. I'm a fan, a huge fan of both Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, now and forever, but that movie does nothing for me. <laughs> I got a lot of history with that movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'll say for now. If you That's subscribe to our After Hours <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah. Once we get a Patreon going, yeah. that'll be our, yeah. That'll be there. What's our, what's our next movie, guys? What's, what's um, on the agenda? Yeah, so our next episode is Stephen's pick. Uh, so, Stephen, do you want to remind us what that will be? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, the pick for next week is The Magnificent Ambersons, which is directed by Orson Welles. Um, I picked that movie just because I have only seen Citizen Kane of the movies that he's directed, and I wanted to see what else he's directed. So it was released in 1942. Um, and you can also probably watch it on the TCM app or the website. It's also on Amazon and Google, YouTube. Um, you'll be able to find it somewhere. It's It's older, so... So like we said before, the Stereoactive Movie Club isn't supposed to be just the five of us chatting. We want it to be an open discussion for people who want to be included. So like Stephen said, we're going to be watching Magnificent Ambersons. We invite you to share your thoughts with us before we record our next episode next week. And you can do that by joining our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com. Or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash Stereoactive Movie Club. Or if you're cute, DM me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or DM Laura, but only yeah. Laura. And only if you're cute. Yes. Only, yeah. only if you're cute. Yeah. If you know movies. 
Yes, I think cute, if you get someone who's no cute movie. and is watching the Magnus- Magnificent yeah. Ambersons, you've you've hit the I'm jackpot, dead. Laura. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you must think the Terminator is the best romantic movie of. Uh, you know. It yeah. is. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. though. There's a lid for every pot. A lid for every pot. <laughs> yeah, that's our line. It's my mom's line. <laughs> This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 